Hey, before we get to the show, quick favor to ask of you. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, whatever podcast player you use to listen to the AWIN podcast. Reviews help the podcast grow, help more people discover the show. So please do that. And if you haven't done so already, please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. Shoot them a text or an email with one of your favorite episodes from 2019. Word of mouth is the primary way the AWIN podcast grow. Thank you for your continued support. And now on to the show. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Good character is hard to define in the abstract, but easy to identify when it's embodied in the lives of great individuals. In order to illuminate what worthy character looks like, my guest today has written a book which consists of profiles of 10 of history's most notable admirals, making out both their inspiring and flawed qualities, as well as how these qualities intersected with their ability to lead. His name is Admiral James Devridis. He served as the commander of U.S. Southern Command, U.S. European Command, and NATO Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, and is now the Dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. On today's show, the Admiral talks about many of the figures in his latest book, Sailing True North, 10 Admirals in the Voyage of Character, including Themistocles, Sir Francis Drake, Horatio Nelson, and Chester Nimitz. We take a look at what these individuals did well, what they did poorly, and how their characteristics, decisions, qualities, and overall moral compass impacted their leadership and influence. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash true north. All right, Admiral James Tavridis, welcome back to the show. Great to be on The Art of Manliness again, Brett. So we had you on, it was last year, 2018, to talk about your book, The Leader's Bookshelf, where you pulled four-star generals and admirals to get their recommendations on the best books for leaders. And I know our listeners really enjoyed that. That's episode number 373, for those who want to check that out. You got a new book out called Sailing True North, 10 Admirals and the Voyage of Character, where you look at 10 great admirals from history and try to find the leadership lessons and character lessons from them. And we'll discuss, talk about some of these admirals. But before you do, in the book, you make this distinction between character and leadership. And you say they're often, these words are often used synonymously, but you think it's important to make a distinction between the two. Um, So first off, why do you think these words are used synonymously? And why do you think it's important to make that distinction? They are often confused. And they're two, in my view, quite distinct elements And the first one, let's start with leadership. Think of leadership as a big, enormous door that swings through the world, influencing others. And that door is somewhat indiscriminate, right? In other words, we can think of Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a great leader. He influences millions. He leads the country through the Great Depression and through the Second World War. But you know what? Pol Pot, the dictator of Cambodia, was a great leader. He was quite capable of reorganizing and inspiring a society, and he ended up killing about a third of the people in the killing fields of Cambodia. So those big doors of leadership can swing for good or for ill. And I would say that, Brett, the hinge of that door, the, the hinge upon which that big door of leadership swings is called character. It's the human heart. And what's in that heart and what kind of character a leader has is what will determine whether that big door of leadership swings for good purpose or for terrible evil in some cases. So bottom line, leadership is the door, but big doors often swing on small hinges. And I I wanted to write a book about character 
because I think we're kind of overweight in leadership books. Everybody's got a leadership book out there, but not too many people are writing or thinking coherently about character. So that was kind of the purpose going in. And of course, I framed it up using what I know, the oceans, the lives of great admirals to try and illustrate some of the challenges that these 10 admirals experienced over 2,500 years of recorded history. And that's one thing about character. It's hard with leadership books. You can kind of do the bullet point tactics of what it means to be a good leader, like listen carefully, praise people, but like character, that's, that's hard to do. Like distill down into bullet points. It is. And and the reason is that character comes to us through a, a different channel, if you will, than leadership skills. Character comes to us initially, I would argue, from our parents, our family when we're small. There, there's a great deal of what's built into your psychology that becomes your character. And then your education, secondly, I think builds character and, and reading and inculcating new ideas through the educational process, which for most of us goes on for close to two decades, if you stop and think about it. And then thirdly, your life experience. You know, at, at the end of the day, we all collide with the real world and how those events unfold for us uh, deeply, deeply sharpens our character particularly, I think, in our 20s. And character then, I think, kind of sets in place in your 30s and 40s. You can still change elements of your character throughout your life, but it gets harder and harder. So at the end of the day, I wanted to to create a book that could help be a, a bit of a a roadmap, or a, to use a net, nautical metaphor, a, a set of buoys for uh, how character is uh, created and how you can examine and evaluate your own character. And I also think, you know, stories are very powerful in conveying, like, you know, conveying character. Yeah, you can't do it a bullet point, but if you just tell the story of an individual, it can be inspiring, right? In a subtle way. That's absolutely right. And at one point I was going to title the book, Sea Stories, like stories from the sea, but at the end of the day, I, I like that image of sailing true north. I think there's something powerful and compelling in it. And by the way, of the 10 admirals in the book, not all of them sailed true north every day of their lives, some of them quite far from it. And I think, to your point, we learn both from inspiring stories of good people showing us positive attributes of character, we can also learn from people who are fundamentally dark. There are dark currents in the human heart. And by learning and recognizing those, I think they become counterexamples for us. And there are some of these admirals who definitely fit that side of the equation as well. And we'll talk about one of them, Pirate. We're going to get to that guy. But let's talk, let's talk about um, this first uh, admiral you, you highlight. It's Themistocles, the famous Greek admiral. Tell us about his world that he lived in and what challenges as a leader that he faced. 
Well, first of all, as you know, Brett, I'm Greek American, Stavridis, so I'm I'm contractually required to have a Greek in every story I tell, every book I write. So it was always a given we were going to go back to the ancient Greeks and find somebody who faced big challenges of character. And that was certainly the case for Themistocles. He lived about 2,500 years ago, and he was the leading political actor and also the leading military admiral, if you will, the leader of the Athenian um, naval forces in the uh, wars between Greece and the Persian Empire. And Themistocles faced an existential challenge. The Persian Empire was vast. It, It encompassed at that time, about half of the world's population. It stretched from present-day India to the Mediterranean Sea and the western coast of Turkey. Think about that for a moment. And as far south as the Arabian Peninsula, as far north as the Black Sea, was an enormous, powerful, militarily capable empire. And they decided they wanted to conquer Greece. And they edged up to Athens. Athens was the final city, the final major city, And uh, the Persian Empire Xerxes sent a massive fleet of these triremes, these great road warships, rowed by, in the case of the Persian slaves. And Themistocles, knowing he faced this existential threat, gathered up all his oarsmen and his ship captains and the marines who would cross over and fight on the decks of the other ships the night before the battle. And he said to them, look, we're outnumbered perhaps 10 to 1, yet we have one great advantage. All of you, everyone in this fleet, from the youngest oarsmen to the most senior captains, were all free men. Yet in these Persian ships, all of the oarsmen, the vast majority of the propulsion of these warships, were slaves. And Themistocles said to his oarsmen and his captains and his warriors, tomorrow there will be a great battle at sea, and tomorrow you must row for your families, for your wives, for your children, for your parents. Tomorrow you must row for your city, and tomorrow you must row for freedom, for freedom itself. And with that charisma and that inner strength of character he conveyed and inspired. And on the morrow, the Greek fleet destroyed the Persian fleet in an extraordinary battle, still studied today at Annapolis at the Naval Academy, by the way. So I think he's a good first example of the power of inner character, particularly to inspire others. Again, that small hinge of character swinging the big door of leadership. But I'll close with something on the darker side, which is that he was also extremely arrogant, prideful. And after this enormous victory, he went back to Athens and attempted to completely overtake the politics of this free city and eventually was banished and ended his life in the court of the Persian emperor. It's a Greek tragedy, and it's a story of hubris and how sometimes our greatest strength can be our greatest weakness as well. That's Themistocles from Sailing True North. And what did, have you, as you've studied Themistocles, what have you taken away and have, that you've noticed that you've 
taken something from Themistocles and applied it to your own role as a leader in the Navy? You know, I, I began to hear about Themistocles when I was a boy from my father, and it was always a cautionary tale. And the caution is, no matter how successful you are, and even at the very peak of success in your life, avoid arrogance. Avoid that tendency to overreach. Exercise humility. That's the real lesson of Themistocles. And and tragically for Themistocles, it, it is a negative lesson for us as we see him. That's what I take away from that. And in every job I've had when I was a ship captain or the commodore of a group of destroyers or commander of an aircraft carrier strike group in combat or supreme allied commander in NATO, I've always had that little voice in the back of my head saying, hey, you're not the center of the universe here. Um, You have a role to play, but you are only part of something that is vastly greater than yourself. That's a good little voice to have in the back of your head. So the next admiral you highlight is uh, Zheng He. I think I pronounced that right. Chinese admiral. Tell us about him. He was uh, lived uh, about 100 years before Christopher Columbus, so in the early 1400s. So while the Europeans are putting together the expeditions that discover America, if you will, they were sailing in quite small ships, about 150 feet long, maybe 60 people. A hundred years earlier, Zheng He is in command of a Chinese fleet where the ships are 500 to 600 feet long and carry three or 400 mariners. China at this time is a regional power that had the capability to become a global power, but chose not to. Zheng He led these treasure expeditions and economic expeditions that sailed from the South China Sea through the Strait of Malacca into the Indian Ocean to the Arabian Peninsula to the coast of Africa. Enormous, enormous sea voyages. He was at the right hand of the Yongle Emperor of the time. But here's what you want to know about Zheng He. Resilience. When he was 10 years old, He was captured in a raid, was a small boy, was enslaved, and then castrated. And uh, as a eunuch, rose from those horrific circumstances to the pinnacle of military power in the Chinese empire. It's an extraordinary story of resilience. And the character lesson is that no matter how far down you are, you can still come back if you exercise discipline and uh, calmness of spirit and uh, a willingness to face the challenges and overcome them. And that's the story of Zheng He. He's a figure of great resilience. Well, the, the character, yeah, after you got was resilience, but then you also, when you're talking about Zheng He, you admired his, you talked about how you admired his organizational ability as a leader. Yeah, remarkable. And and again, think about the ability here because he he was not just the commander of these fleets. He was the constructor. He was the naval architect. He designed them. He was given the power to conscript as many people as necessary. He built shipyards to build these enormous wooden structures. He effectively invented the idea of these large sailing ships 
with massive crews. So that organizational ability, I think, is also much at the heart of Zheng He. And what did you take away from him? Like, how did you apply the lessons from him in your own leadership career? Yeah, uh, two things, uh, and we've touched on both of them. One is any task, no matter how big it is, you can reduce it to small components and methodically execute it. That's organization. And I always say it's like graduate school or any school, really. Doing well in school is not about being smart. It's about being organized and breaking down learning into small chunks that you can inculcate. So organizational skill. And the other thing I think of, again, is this idea of resilience. Hard to imagine a harder starting line in a race than being enslaved at age 10 and castrated. When you put that in perspective, your day doesn't look so bad, does it? And I think that has been a helpful takeaway for me. Another interesting tidbit that I got from the book is he was a practicing Muslim, which was interesting. You know, he's in the mean court. He's probably a religious minority, but he's still able to do well in that environment. Absolutely. And I think this goes to another attribute, which you will, is is flexibility. It's not being utterly dogmatic about things. Um, Several of the admirals, perhaps we'll talk about later, were very certain of themselves at all times. I think Sheng He comes through the ages, and of course this is 500 years ago, it's difficult to have precise descriptions of individuals like we can today, but Sheng He comes across in the historical record as someone who will mold himself to the circumstances. And I think probably being a Muslim in a, in a Confucian court would lead to that. The next leader you include on your list is a pirate, which is not something you'd expect in a book about leadership lessons from admirals. That's Sir Francis Drake. So what can we learn from Sir Francis Drake about leadership and character? Yes, this is a classic, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, The good of Sir Francis Drake is he's utterly decisive. He's a gifted mariner. He is someone who can inspire his subordinates, and he As a result, he circumnavigates the earth for the first time. He's the first commander who makes the entire circumnavigation of the world and survives. Magellan's famous voyage did circumnavigate the globe, but Magellan died before the voyage was complete. Drake is the first one to lead an expedition and survive going all the way around the world. Secondly, he leads the British forces that defeat the Spanish Armada and like Themistocles, an existential threat to England, and he succeeds. So he he has great gifts of decisiveness and command. That's the good. The bad is he is the dark currents we talked about truly flow through his heart. He is rapacious. He is driven by a desire to amass great wealth. His burning ambition allows him to overcome what many others would face as moral and ethical boundaries. So the good, the bad, and the ugly is his techniques include enslavement, rape, murder, summary executions of his crew. He is a dark, dark figure, very much a pirate. And and on a slightly lighter note, for any of the listeners who have been to the ride at Disney World, the Pirates of the Caribbean, it's based on the exploits, if you will, 
of Sir Francis Drake in the Caribbean. A very dark figure, but a very compelling one as well. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. After thousands of hours perfecting the science, Lightbox is here to tell us how lab-grown diamonds work. Lab-grown diamonds are essentially chemically the same as natural ones. They're just made in a lab. To make them, they use a plasma reactor to heat tiny pieces of lab-grown diamonds up to temperatures almost as hot as the sun. In about two weeks, those little seeds turn into full carrot stones. Lightbox has hacked the process to consistently create their gorgeous diamonds. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Lightbox lab-grown diamonds aren't just made the same every time. They're also priced the same. Each carrot is $800. So there you have it. That's how lab-grown diamonds work. Get the facts and see the signs behind the sparkle at lightboxjewelry.com slash manliness. And if you're going to purchase something, use code manliness for $25 off. Again, that's lightboxjewelry.com slash manliness. You'll see the science behind lab-grown diamonds and use code manliness for $25 off your purchase of a lab-grown diamond. Turn your dream into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace is the tool for you. They got great looking templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. You can get a great looking website up yourself in just a matter of minutes. I did this with my wife's 20 year high school reunion. She needed a website to sell tickets, used Squarespace, got it up and took me like 15 minutes. Besides the design, and you can also have e-commerce functionality so you can sell stuff. They also have 24-7 award-winning customer support. So if you have any trouble and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever, Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. Head to squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash manliness. Offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. It's a great example of being a good leader, but not not having the character to go along with it. Exactly. So any list of great admirals wouldn't be complete without Horatio Nelson. For those who aren't familiar with him, tell us a bit about his career and his lasting influence on the British Navy and culture. Yeah, I think he's arguably the greatest admiral in history. In a certain sense, like a couple of the other admirals we've discussed, England at this time is facing an existential threat from Napoleon Bonaparte, who, if he could have built the ships and overcome the British Navy, uh, could, I believe, successfully have invaded the uh, British Isles. So Nelson is commander of the British fleet at this time. He is on patrol off the coast of Spain at a place called Trafalgar near Cape Trafalgar. And he fights a battle with the combined fleets of France and Spain and utterly destroys them. It's the greatest single-sided victory at sea I can imagine, and with everything riding on it. The only one that matches up with it, I suppose, is Themistocles uh, back at the Battle of Salamis, who saves his city, state, Athens. But here's the difference. Horatio Nelson dies in the battle. And, you know, there's nothing better for your reputation than dying right at the absolute peak of an enormous victory. And your last words are, God and country protect my wife. He he is really, in every sense, B 
becomes the iconic admiral and is still heroically regarded in Great Britain. In fact, many folks have been to London and gone to Trafalgar Square right in the heart of London. And on it is a plinth, and at the top of it is an enormous statue of Horatio Nelson. He, he, in that sense, it's it's like if you think of it in terms of Washington D.C., it's it's like the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial kind of put together. And uh, he is uh, so highly regarded. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. His, his moral compass didn't always sail true north in the sense of he had a long-term adulterous affair with a very beautiful young actress, Emma Hamilton, conceived uh, a daughter, a child born out of wedlock, named her after himself, by the way, Horatia, and he was scandalous in that regard. It's hard to overstate how society at that time looked at an arrangement like that, which was frankly quite public, and and thus people were quite scandalized by it. And then secondly, he was, uh, we would say today, he was kind of a publicity hound. He just loved to get his voice out there, get his engage publicly. He he. He needed public acclamation. So a a few uh, failings on the moral side, but overall, in terms of his impact on the naval profession, got to score him really at the top. And last thought, his great gift and what I take away from Lord Nelson was his ability to build teams. All of his ship captains worshipped him. He, He just inspired people with his kind of simplicity of command and his kindness to his sailors in an age in which the lash was commonly used. He refused to do so. He took incredible care of his sailors, making sure they had the best food, the best doctors. He was a beloved as a leader. And he inspired this idea of the band of brothers, his his ship captains operated together better than any other military unit in modern military history. And thus he won this epic battle of Trafalgar. And how have you developed your team building capacity as a leader in, during your career? I mean, any lessons you took away personally from him on team building? Indeed. I mentioned one of them, which is uh, obsessive concern about living conditions, logistical support, taking care of people in very visible ways. Um, Nelson walked the decks of his ships constantly, went into every corner of the ships, made sure that things were right for the sailors. People will reward you when you do that. And then secondly, that near peer network, the people who are at your level or just below are often the most honest observers who will give you the best advice. Uh, Nelson did both of those things brilliantly. He he took care of people below him. He reached out to the left and the right, to the peers around him, built these bands of brothers. Uh, I took both those lessons, uh, particularly, for example, when I was a young ship captain for the first time on USS Barry, an Arleigh Burke destroyer. I would walk that ship hour after hour, day after day, I loved that crew, and they saw that. And secondly, talking to the other captains on the waterfront, learning from each other, that that band of brothers mentality uh, served me well uh, throughout all the days of my career. 
Another character strength of Horatio Nelson that I took away from your your section on him was his resilience as well. Uh, he lost an arm, lost a leg. He had seasickness, even though his career was being an admiral. He was. He was. Uh, he was also a very small guy, which is one of the reasons I like him. I, I'm like a towering five five. Lord Nelson was five four, a small even for those days. And he weighed, I don't know, 125 pounds. I've seen his uniform hanging in the British Royal Museum. It looks like a boy's uniform. He's a small, slight man, yet he was fearless in battle, would often lead boarding parties when he was a junior officer. And as you say, he lost his right arm, which he was right-handed and had to reteach himself to fight and to write with his left hand. Some very valuable archives, by the way, are letters that he wrote as a left-hander as he was learning to write again. And then he lost an eye in a subsequent battle. And, you know, he was the quintessential small but very tough kind of individual that you just have to admire. And yes, the resilience was a big part of that. Last point, uh, back to the blind in one eye thing. He was also a kind of difficult subordinate. He was great to his peers, great to the people who worked for him. He didn't always do exactly what his bosses wanted him to do. And if he saw a signal at sea, and of course ships are maneuvered at sea in these days by flapping signal flags in the breeze, if he didn't like the signal from his senior's flagship, he would often put the telescope to his blind eye and claim he didn't see a signal and then do whatever the hell he wanted to. Fortunately for him, it it virtually always came out better than what his boss had wanted him to do. But uh, Brett, that's where the expression to turn a blind eye to something comes from, from Lord Nelson and his telescope to his blind eye. That's a good bit of trivia you can drop at a, a party. <laughs> yeah, next time you're on Jeopardy. Right. Um, so the next admiral you talk about, we're kind of finally getting into U.S. admirals, American admirals. And the first one you included was an academic. He's an academic admiral named Alfred Thayer Mahan. Tell us about him and his influence on the U.S. Navy. Sure. It, it, you cannot overstate the strategic influence of Alfred Thayer Mahan. He was not a good sailor. He was mediocre at best in command of ships. In fact, one of his uh, fitness reports actually had a line in it that that said, Captain Mahan needs to develop his ship handling skills, and it is not the business of naval officers to write books. Because, of course, that's what he really was skilled at. He was a writer, a strategic analyst who built a plan for an emerging global U.S. Navy. He's living at the end of the 19th century in the late 1800s, and he absolutely crafts the ideas that went into Teddy Roosevelt and the Great White Fleet. He's the one who comes up with the idea of building global naval bases all around the world. He sketches out the future of America as a world sea power and writes a whole series of books about this, which are still used today and, by the way, are studied by other nations. China today in the 21st century is building that kind of global naval capability that Alfred Thayer Mahan wrote about well over 100 years ago. So intellectual, brilliant, but kind of a mediocre operator and and personally a very cold person, not someone who had a lot of empathy for others. He was scholarly. Dostoevsky said somewhere that an 
intellectual is a man with spectacles on his nose and winter in his heart. That was kind of Alfred Thayer Mahan, a brilliant mind, but not high emotional intelligence to go with it. So what lessons have you applied in your own career as an admiral from him? Well, first of all, uh, certainly all the strategic thinking, but in the context of our conversation today about character and, and leadership, I took two things away from him. One, his relentless, relentless pursuit of the truth, of find the facts wherever they lead you as you write the strategy. He was a, a researcher who wanted all the facts. That's pretty powerful. And then secondly, life balance. If you want to have a fulfilling life, at least for me, and I think for most people, you have to let other people into your heart. You have to spend time with others. You have to have real empathy for others. That was his flaw. And I've often thought uh, in my own context that that how important it is to find that time to connect with family and friends. Not always easy in these lives and careers we lead, but a powerful counter lesson that I take away from Alfred Theramahan. Yeah, so a leader needs to think about those high-level things like strategy, but also get it, get out from the ivory tower and be able to interact. Exactly. On Very well said. Very well said. So you talk about Chester Nimitz, and I think people might be familiar with the name because we have a there's a carrier named after him. Who was Chester Nimitz, and you know why is he known as the the admiral's admiral? <laughs> yeah, he's certainly the greatest of the American admirals. I would say he he's the Nelson, the Lord Nelson of the United States of America, and he's born in the early part of the 20th century. He's born a million miles from the ocean in a small town in central Texas called Fredericksburg. Texas, not too far from Austin in the hill country of Texas. He's in a German-speaking family when he's born before World War I, and then wants to go to West Point. You know, he's a land kind of guy. He's probably never seen the ocean until he fails to get into West Point and then is selected to go to Annapolis, to the U.S. Naval Academy, and adapts himself and his gifts as he rises through the ranks and his his progress is steady but not spectacular his his gift is his empathy his quiet confidence his calm demeanor he reminds me a lot of zheng he as we understand the chinese admiral over the centuries i think the two of them nimitz and zheng he would have been quite similar they were also both large men, had physical stature going for them. They both were very skilled organizers. They both were quietly confident. Chester Nimitz never had to uh, go through what Zheng He did in his youth, obviously. But Nimitz had this gift of inspiring confidence in others without being the smartest person in the room, without raising his voice, without being flamboyant. And it's interesting to contrast him, for example, with his army counterpart of the time, General Douglas MacArthur, who who was that flamboyant, uh, loud, charismatic, got to be the the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral kind of personality. Nimitz was the opposite of that. And, and I'll close on Nimitz by saying, picture this in terms of resilience. This is his Zheng He moment. He finally gets command of the Pacific Fleet. 
That's the good news. The bad news is he gets it two weeks after Pearl Harbor. The fleet is destroyed. All the battleships are sunk. Cordite is in the air in Pearl Harbor. Bodies are being pulled out of these ships. The carriers are out at sea dodging the Japanese. All that's left in that port are a few diesel submarines, small, stinky, oily little boats. So instead of taking command on a beautiful day, standing on a gorgeous battleship in his service dress whites, a Chester Nimitz takes command of what's left of the Pacific fleet, standing on the deck of a, a tiny diesel submarine. And what does he do? He squares his shoulders. He keeps almost everybody from the previous staff because he knows what happened at Pearl Harbor could have happened to anybody. He builds teams. He does that Nelsonian thing of building and working with his peers. Only Nimitz could have subdued the flamboyant personality of Douglas MacArthur. Only Nimitz could have melded a team that includes Admiral Bull Halsey, the most flamboyant of American admirals and the, and the biggest publicity hound we've ever produced. Only Nimitz had that kind of self-effacing, take the big task, beat the Japanese empire, but break it down into small bites. Let's rebuild the fleet. Let's overhaul the ships. Let's fix everything we can. Let's figure out where the Japanese are going. Let's build a strategy. Let's work with MacArthur. Let's get all my admirals together. Slowly, methodically, three and a half years later, we signed the Declaration of Surrender of the Japanese Empire in Tokyo Bay. That is a trajectory of real character above all. No, that's the thing that stood out to me um, when I read about him is his discretion. He oftentimes would, he saw the big picture and he'd oftentimes do things that in the short term might have looked weak for a leader to do, but he understood, like he was playing the long game and he knew that if he did that, it would help the, the overall goal that he was going for. That's absolutely right. And let, me, let me give you an example from my own career. When I was a four-star admiral uh, for the first time and my job was to be commander of U.S. Southern Command, everything south of the United States, all the military activity in Latin America, Caribbean, Central America, and so forth. My instinct was to rush into very high-level military kind of exercises. And what I decided instead was to, to play that long game, which is don't use the heavy hitter, big carriers, cruisers. The long game is soft power in a place like Latin America and the Caribbean. It's medical diplomacy. It's a quiet counter-narcotics and intelligence work. It's counterinsurgency in Colombia. It's building schools, wells, and clinics. It is um, literacy training. Playing that long game was very very powerful for me in in that job. This is before I became the NATO commander. That was a very different job. But in that job, I really drew on the lessons of Chester Nimitz. Did you find any weaknesses in his leadership or his character? I really can't. With Nimitz, I think he's as close to perfect as you can come, at least the way I look at people. I suppose you could say, well, he didn't have that kind of crackling charisma. He wasn't one to leap up and give the flashy, perfect press conference. I'm not sure that's as important in 
in a leader for me as those inner quiet qualities of character are. And so again, big door of leadership swings on that small hinge. I'd, I'd take the, I'd take that hinge of Nimitz over anybody else in this book. So throughout all these admirals you highlight, they all have different traits that they've exemplified and character traits and leadership abilities. Did you find a common thread between all of them, like attributes that they all possess and had in common? I don't think there are a is a single trait that all of them possessed but i'm gonna i'm gonna add 10 seconds about one other admiral i know this is the art of manliness but there is a woman admiral in the book and that is admiral grace hopper she's the last admiral in the book in terms of chronology and she's uh, a computer scientist a mathematician she's completely different than all the other admirals but she has a quality character trait that I think is vitally important, and that's intellectual curiosity. As a seven-year-old, she starts disassembling alarm clocks, trying to figure out how they work. Her whole life is one of finding out and learning. She's also wonderful to be around. I've met her several times, just a dynamic, funny woman. She writes the computer program COBOL, essentially inventing the idea of programming computers at the end of the Second World War and serves on active duty as an admiral longer than any other admiral in American history other than Hyman Rickover. And so Grace Hopper has intellectual curiosity. And so I suppose if there were one quality that every one of these admirals had, it would be that, that they were curious about the world and willing to try new things, intellectual curiosity often related to creativity, not always, but I think that's sort of the package that that flows through all of them is that blend of curiosity and creativity. Almost all the admirals have moments of extreme doubt and fear and failure. So I, I, th- I think all of them demonstrate resilience in in fairly significant ways some more than others but if you look at other qualities of character you know things like humility balance honesty a sense of justice empathy yeah some of them had those qualities and others did not and that's why if i'd wanted to write a book about character and i was going to pick one admiral i'd probably write about nimitz as you can guess but in order to illustrate kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly, as we talked about with the pirate Drake, you really do have to pick, I'd say, at least 10 admirals. There are a couple of great admirals that didn't quite make the cut, uh, but uh, the bottom line, the closest there is to a universal pair of qualities, I suppose, are creativity and resilience. Well, it's been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? First and foremost, I'd say go to my website, which is really easy to remember. It's just Admiral Stav, the first four letters of my last name, Admiral Stav, S-T-A-V dot com. And then secondly, when you do check out the book, in the back is a kind of mini bibliography. It's not an academic one, but for each of the admirals, it lists two or three books with a couple of sentences about each of them. That'll propel you on this voyage of character as you hopefully continue to sail true north. Well, Admiral James Stavridis, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's my pleasure, Brett. We'll do it again when my next book comes out, which is going to be a novel, 
which will be out in about a year. So stay tuned. I'm looking forward to that. My guest today was Admiral Stavridis. His latest book is called Sailing True North. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, Admiral Stav. That's AdmiralStav.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash true north. You can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles about different topics. And also check out The Strenuous Life, strenuouslife.co. It's an online platform that we created to help you turn your intentions into actions. And we've got an enrollment coming up here next week for January. So strenuouslife.co, get your email on our waiting list. We'll send out an email when enrollment opens up next week. Hope to see you there on The Strenuous Life. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code manliness at checkout to get a month free trial. After you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AON Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member if you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AON Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.